spend time, support, make a good network and a good connection. And you'll find that when you're off doing your own thing, you're going to have people around looking out for you. If you're a creative person, if you're a baker, a dancer, a photographer, a screenwriter, an actor, a comedian, a podcaster, and you want to figure out how to make a living doing what you love, this is the show. This is the show. Don't keep your day job. My name is Kathy Heller, and I'm a singer-songwriter. I make a living doing what I love, and I want that for you. This is the show that's going to help you do that and give you not only inspiration, but some real-life strategies. This is going to help you figure out how to take your creative passion and turn it into a profit. This episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job is brought to you by Blue Apron. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash dreamjob. You're going to love how yummy it tastes. You're going to love how good it feels to be able to create incredible home-cooked meals from blueapron.com slash dreamjob. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. Thank you so much for posting reviews on iTunes. It helps us more than you could ever know. So if you haven't done it, please leave us a review. It means so much to us. I love that so many of you are coming to our Facebook page and you're telling us what you're doing and what you're up to and what questions you have. I love that people are supporting one another. One of the questions that keeps coming up, Lena called into our voicemail and she asked it and Allison left me a message and there's been Facebook posts and people are saying, Kathy, how do I know what my passion is? How do I know which thing to pursue? What if I like doing three things or what if I'm not really sure what I'm good at? So here's some food for thought, and I first want you to know you're not alone. There's 150,000 books on Amazon related to the topic of what's my passion, so you're not alone. And the other thing that's important to understand is that 80%, Forbes did a study, 80% of people say that they're not happy doing what, what work that they're doing. So that's not good. I mean, people need to feel fulfilled. Life is not long. We have a small amount of time to be able to do what it is that we love doing, and so we need to get busy figuring that out, and we gotta be happy. I mean, at the end of the day, what I want to make sure that you understand is that the show is not about you need to be famous or on the cover of a magazine. This is about just doing what you love, figuring out what's a simple thing that makes you happy, that contributes value to the world. So that brings me to my next point. If you want to figure out what's your passion, the first question I want you to ask yourself, I want you to make a list. What are the things you love to do? And what's the thing that when you do it, the time just passes by so quickly? What is that thing? What is the work you can't not do? What is that thing? And don't don't cloud it with, is it practical? Is it really gonna make money? Just trust it, okay? I want you to understand when you love something and you do that thing, and you're serving a purpose, and what you do adds value to the world, the money is gonna follow. And that's the second question I want you to ask yourself is, what is the thing that you love to do that also either solves a problem, or lifts people up, or is something that you do really well that you think will offer value to the world? You know, every person has a unique fingerprint, Everybody has a unique story to tell. Everybody has something unique to express. And even if somebody else is already painting or crocheting or somebody else is baking, they're not expressing it in the way that you will. So it's really important that you figure out what is that work that you can't not do. And if you're really passionate about it and it offers value to the world and it contributes something beautiful, then you're going to make a living doing it. Imagine if we could change it around so that instead of 80% of people hating what they're doing, imagine if 80% of people loved what they did and they loved waking up every day. You know, life just can't be about waking up and paying bills. There's got to be more to it. And you have something unique to say and you have something unique that you love to do. So 
I want you to figure out what that is. And it might mean that you have to explore a few things. You know, it might mean that you have to do an internship or you might need to take somebody to lunch who's already working in that craft and ask them some questions. If you're not really sure, maybe you need to take some action because if you sit and think about things, that doesn't always lead to results. But taking action and just putting a little momentum into something will definitely help you get there faster. And the other thing that you can do is listen to your body. Like sometimes your intuition is just screaming at you and you just have to listen. So if you make a list of the things that you think you love to do and you're not sure, close your eyes and picture yourself doing each one of those things. What's the thing that when you picture it, your chest just feels lighter? You just feel expansive. And what's the thing that when you think about doing it, you just feel a little constricted, like you feel like things contract a little bit, it feels a little heavy. You know, believe me, you have an intuition and it's so smart, it's so wise and it's calling to you. You know what it is that you love. You just might have some voices in your head that's clouding it by saying, maybe you're not great at it, maybe you're not, it's not practical. Close your eyes and make a list of the things that you love and picture yourself. Which one is it? And those of you who are listening, who already know what that is, you're so lucky that you really have that clarity and clarity is power. So now that you have that clarity, what are you gonna do to take action? What is something that you can do today to create? What can you be making today? Who can you be reaching out to? And remember that you're the sum total of the five people you spend the most time with. So put yourself in positions where you're around people who dream big and create things. And if you need to, Go start studying. Look look online. There's so much information. Start looking at the people who are killing it in your craft, in your field. How did they do it? How are they doing it? Read things. Keep listening to this podcast. Do whatever you have to do. Go onto our Facebook page and create a mastermind group. Ask four or five people who are on the Facebook page to meet up with you online once a month, twice a month, and brainstorm ideas with one another. This is a space where we want to support you and help you to not just say, oh, that's a good idea, but how are you going to take action? Because inspiration without action doesn't amount to very much. And I want you to really feel like you're moving forward. So speaking of moving forward, I get so excited when people come to the Facebook page and they post that they're feeling inspired and then they're actually doing things about it. So I wanted to share with you a couple things that people have posted and they've really inspired me that they're listening to this podcast and they're taking action. So the first thing was Jim Cook, he writes in and he says, gotta say, started listening to the podcast and thought, hey, I'll try one more time for theater. Well, just got cast as a lead in a musical. It's opening doors again. Thank you for doing this podcast. It's so great to hear other artists in the world. Well, thank you, Jim. That's awesome. Why don't you go ahead and post on our Facebook page where people can come and see you in this show Isn't that incredible? He was going to give up on something. He heard the podcast and he decided to take action and he auditioned for a show and he got cast as the lead. So way to go. The other thing that I thought was great was Nicole. She posted on our Facebook page a photo of a cake bouquet that she had made. It looks like a floral arrangement, but it's all edible. It's a cake. And she emailed me the story. I said, this is so incredible. She posted on our Facebook page that she was so inspired by the podcast. She decided to take action and she and her husband um, had fallen on some hard times. They were doing real estate and it had kind of flopped in their market and she was feeling a little depressed. And prior to that, she was a special education preschool teacher and she was not really sure what she was going to do. And she said she was listening to the podcast and she knew one day she'd been walking in the grocery store and she, she just flashed on it. She realized that her passion was cooking and decorating, baking things. And she heard the podcast and she told me, she said, 
she decided she was going to write down three things that day that she could do. So she created a name for her business. She decided what kinds of treats she wanted to sell. And she found someone to make a logo. And from there, she created an online presence. And by word of mouth, now she has five people confirmed that for Valentine's Day, they want this beautiful cake bouquet that she makes. I think that's fantastic. If you guys want to see what she's up to, if you want to buy her cake um, that looks like a floral floral arrangement, go on to our Facebook page. She posted it. She posted a picture of it. Continue to walk forward, you guys. You are inspiring people around you. You are inspiring me. And I know without a shadow of a doubt, if you love something and you keep going and you walk forward and you hone your craft and you let people know about it and you reach out to people and you create some content and put it out there in the world, you are going to be successful making a living doing what you love. And remember that that's what this is about. It's not about fame. It's not about being on the cover of a magazine. It's just getting to do a simple thing that you love that also makes an impact in the world. So before we dive into this next interview, I want to give a big thank you to Blue Apron for sponsoring our show. And today our guest is actually a professional pastry chef. With Blue Apron, though, you don't need to be a professional. You don't need to be an expert and you can make delicious meals. This week was really fun. My kids are gathered around when the box comes from Blue Apron. They want to see what's inside every every time it's a different you know set of ingredients. And what's really cool is they portion everything off. They make it super easy for you. This week it was tortillas and a lime and onion and sweet potato. And we made these yummy quesadillas they gave us cheese it's really neat because they pack everything on dry ice so it will stay fresh and waiting for you at your door and then you get to make something together with your kids that's fresh that's fun and it's great thanks again to blue apron for supporting this podcast check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping please go to blueapron.com slash dream job you're going to get free meals that are delicious and you're going to be also supporting our show at the same time thank you so much all right, on today's show, I'm really excited. We have Greg Mendel. He owns a place called Neighbor Bakehouse. It's in San Francisco. It's doing so well. Greg started out wanting to pursue his love of cooking, making people happy. And, you know, he's now a pastry chef. He's very successful. He's got his own brick and mortar shop. He's got 19 employees, him and his wife, Christine. Um, they just, they're known for not only having delicious pastries and making, you know, killer uh, sourdough breads and croissants, but they treat people really well. And I'm so happy, Greg, that you're here today and you're going to tell us how this all unfolded and how you were able to now, you know, have your own shop, do what you love to do. All right. So, Greg, you have made a living doing what you love. You're baking every day and you're you're getting to do this and make people happy doing something you love doing. Can you tell us where did this start? Where does this story begin? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, for me, when I think about uh, my cooking career, uh, I think it has the, the humble beginnings of watching my mom and grandma cook. You know, it's like like many of us chefs, we all go back to moms and grandma and just kind of being around the joy that the food, the togetherness just this great thing to be around and I think from a young age I was just kind of drawn to cooking um, Mm -hmm. and I felt like as I got older and you know wanted to think about what I wanted to do as as an older person or a grown-up the cooking field was something that was just very honest straightforward at the time and yeah I mean I, I didn't really know what the road ahead would provide but I just thought it was like a good way to kind of you know, look at look at something that uh, could probably 
provide me like a, a healthy lifestyle or happiness, you know, maybe not make a lot of money, but at least I would, I knew I would always feel good about what I was doing. And I think that was the most important. Wow. Well, little did you know, it turned out to be a good living. So when you were a kid, yeah. what was it that your mom and grandma were cooking? What was, what were these memories made of? Oh man, Saturday mornings were always like the waff of tomato sauce and garlic and onions that kind of set the stage for the weekend. Meatballs and roasted vegetables and it was an Italian family upbringing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of a, a lot of the pasta like. So there's things. a lot of love that comes through that food. Oh, the most, the yeah. most love. Yeah. One of my favorite movies is Moonstruck and it's like every good conversation they have is around the table and you just, it's so real. It's like you could just feel how much like the whole family dynamic is is in those meals. It's awesome. Absolutely. So I liked what you just said before. Not only did you say it was like this really good feeling, but it was something that you felt was real. There was something honest, the people around food and food as a living you felt was something that's authentic. I think that that's, that's interesting. So were you doing this in high school on the side? Were you doing this in college? When did this start? Yeah, I mean, it started basically like freshman year of high school. And um, I don't know if you remember Cappy's Deli in Loggers Run, but I basically started there throughout high school. So ninth grade to senior year. Cappy's Deli was this little Italian deli market that my grandparents would go to for the cold cuts and their canned tomatoes and cheeses and stuff. So I kind of knew the guys there and um, uh, it was close enough that I could ride my bike. So I basically started doing that, and the guys were really cool, treated me right. So I didn't really look around too many other places. And what were you doing there? I just started off as like a dishwasher and like a deli deli stock boy. And, you know, once I got old enough, like right before the age of 16, they they let me use the slicer. um, (laughs) That was a big moment. Like, I can use a slicer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were they were really hesitant, you know, but they, they saw that I was pretty focused. And, uh, you know, I basically just hung out with these guys and went from, you know, learning how to clean everything properly and store, take care of all the materials, like all the pans and knives. And then they would have me do small tasks, like I'd help the butcher and I'd help him like, you know, cut down uh, chicken breast, you know, parts of the chicken, or I'd go help the baker that would come in. And I'd help him fill cookies and coat uh, eclairs and fill cannoli. Oh, that's um, fun. And I really enjoyed hanging out with the baker more than anything else. Okay. So I know ultimately that's what you're doing now is you have this great bakery. So that was the seed mm-hmm. of that love. And I, I can yeah. see you riding your bike, you know, as a kid, a 16-year-old kid to a job. Clearly, it's something that you love. And a lot of other kids are working, you know, at the movies. You know, you're, you're riding your bike to work and fill cannolis. Like, clearly, this is something you loved. So what happened next? Yeah. I, I guess after graduating, you start to, like, look at your career focuses. You know, what, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I think if you're, if you're just a cook, it wasn't, it wasn't a very exciting job in, like, 1994, 1995. I mean... Some of the big chefs, you know, that are mega huge institution chefs now. I mean, Thomas Keller, like, just put out one of his, you know, the first cookbook from the French Laundry. Um, so it still wasn't like a, a thing that you you kind of looked at as a young person. You said, oh, you know, I want to go cook the rest of my life. And right. I even had some people that were asking me, like, what do you want to do with your life? I mean, you're, you're cooking and that's that's all right. 
And you know, at the same time, after I graduated, I, I went to city colleges and community colleges, and I just figured I would maybe take a break from the kitchen. So I started waiting tables, and I just went through a couple years of community college, and I found myself studying like anthropology and behavioral studies, psychology, trying to figure out what I wanted to explore more of. It's interesting but, that you were saying that people were like, you like to cook and that's okay, but what are you going to do? Like as if like it's a given, yeah. it's inevitable. You're not going to be able to make a living doing the thing you wake up every day to do. So excited. So you start studying anthropology because that makes more sense. And I get that. You know, I did that in college too. I was a humanities major. I went in, you know, st- taking musical theater and, oh, you're never going to make money. So then I start taking like humanities classes as if you know studying the Yanomamos is going to make me rich and then eventually I came back around to doing what I love thank god so so what happens next for you well I think after sitting in some of these classes and just sitting through all the the theory I, I started to just kind of see you know I guess there was like food anthropology there there was this other side of food and I felt like I can study all the different social theories I want and I can go uh, into another culture and I can observe and and all this, but it's still just going to be this subjective experience. And I don't know if I really saw a lot of benefit in just sort of maybe sitting in academia and just like writing papers about observation. Right. And I just wanted to kind of be a little bit more involved um, or maybe I just, I'm not really sure, but I I felt like I just needed something a little bit more uh, revealing. (laughs) So I, I, I just kind of look back at my experience at, at Cappy's Deli and I remember like, oh man, you know, those guys, they knew the families coming in, they, they, the families knew them. There was like this just really beautiful exchange. Wow. And I also remember just the sort of the immediate gratification of something like coming out of the oven that you made, which was awesome or terrible. Right. And I felt like that was the honest exchange I really wanted, like beyond all the theories that you can always argue your point. Right. Um, it's kind of tough to argue like a nasty burnt cookie coming out of the oven. Yeah. Like it's just gross. Yeah. I love the you know? simplicity so, of that. Yeah. Like after all this and now you're reading all these books and you're writing papers and you look back and say there was something so honest and so simple about a person coming into a deli who everybody already knows and they, they make him that dish that he loves and, and he feels good about it and he leaves. There's just something so honest about that. It makes so much sense. So what did you do? Yeah, I mean, I think I just decided to choose the road, you know, maybe that would, wouldn't be like so uh, glamorous or, you know, maybe wouldn't provide so much money. But I, I just felt like I wanted to be an honest person and have an honest craft. So I ended up after waiting tables, I, I just stopped going to school. And it was also I had done some traveling and backpacking and, you know, different parts of the world. And um, I was able to like stay in hostels and uh, I would exchange like, hey, maybe I can get a free bed if you if I cook dinner for you know the hostel that night. Oh, I love and, that. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah, so things sort of rolled out like that for me, where I felt like, okay, well, I have this skill, you know, yeah. and it can make me some money, or it yep. can provide me travel. Yep. And I was really into traveling, so I figured I would just cook and travel, and then see where it brought me from there. And then I think you know when you travel for several years, you feel like you can just continue doing that. But I think I had like this realization maybe around the age of like 23, 24, where like if I I don't have a degree, you know, what am I going to really do with myself? I can't just like continue cooking at hostels and call myself like a chef. So I, I stopped traveling so much for just pleasure and curiosity. And I just 
put my head down and just started digging into the kitchens. And I just felt like it was really important to just study uh, under good chefs or work in places that I thought the food was exceptional and, uh, you know, things that sort of stimulated me. So what did you do? Start doing research of, you know, who who was doing stuff that you were interested in and start sending emails to people who were restaurateurs or pastry chefs? What did you do? Well, you know, honestly, it was a little bit more like, I guess, in the late 90s, it was just a little bit more like on the phone. Right, of um, course. Like, yeah, email, right. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, well, it was just a little bit less. And, you know, we had still had all the you know computers that were coming up and the internet was coming up, of course, but it just, it wasn't as accessible. The industry is so accessible these days. You know, people can, you can look at any menu anywhere in the world of any restaurant. That's so and that crazy. just wasn't the case. That's amazing. So it's true. For, and so you had yeah, to pick up the phone. Florida, I'm, I'm sorry? You had to pick up the phone and cold call people. That's hard. Yeah. You know, just to kind of see like, hey, are you guys, are you guys hiring? Right. What kind of positions are available? You know, in South Florida, there were really there were like two or three chefs to actually work for. So I think I worked for two out of the three. And then, you know, there was a point where I just wanted to keep on tasting and exploring new kitchens. And I started off in savory, like doing savory cook work. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think just trying to now figure out what I need to do to be like really good in, in this industry. So there was a point where I was going to like sign up for a culinary school after working in kitchens for like, say, five years. Right. And, um, you know, the school for cuisine is a tricky thing. It's a very, very expensive investment with, with not really a good return. Right. For example, if you go get a four-year degree from, like, a decent college, you know, that's more valuable than, like, a one-year culinary school degree. It's not accredited. You can't take those credits that you just yeah, paid thirty, dollars right. $50,000 for anywhere else. So yeah. I had a friend of mine, yeah. Gene Richardson, he yeah. was like, you should try to find something less expensive, but maybe a higher quality education. So I, I looked around and found like a community college that had some culinary classes. I signed up for it, but it still was like very slow uh, compared to what I've already learned thus far. You know, I, I already knew a lot sure. of really good cooking yeah, techniques and preparations. Yeah. So um, basically chose not to go to the school. And then I went from savory cooking into pastry where I felt like things really changed for me. What was the shift? Well, I think up until that point, why I decided to go into the pastry field, much different than it is now. But back then, like the pastry guys were the ones who were scaling all their recipes, using digital scales, working in metrics. It just seemed a little bit more exacting. And it seemed like something I could use like in an empirical way, like there, there are solid numbers in front of me and ratios that I can extrapolate, you know, from the recipe and like to understand the deeper mechanics of recipes. So that's when I really started getting into this higher level sense of cooking. Hmm. I mean, that was basically, I think, like 2002, 2003, uh, when I started with pastry. And it's just, I worked for an amazing chef, this guy, Stefan Cheremy, um, this French guy who was a very, very tough, high expectation chef. But he was very fair. So he sort of set me on a really good path. And I, that's why I feel like things changed a lot for me. Wow. And did you enjoy it more? Was it more fun than savory for you? Uh, I wouldn't say it's more fun. I mean, I, I just I consider myself a cook across the board. I mean, whether it's like baking or pastry or anything like this. So you worked for this amazing, amazing pastry chef. And then what happened after that? Honestly, I just kept my head down. And I just tried to, I mean, as he described it, like, establish my foundation, which is like the essential elements to, to understanding pastry. You know, I, I think I just focused on the work. Like I didn't focus on a title. I didn't focus on how much money I was making. 
I made the situation work. And, you know, for me, it was all about practice and practicing this craft, practicing just the, the ideas and the techniques. And how did um, that show up? What does that look like when you say you were committed to practicing? What were you doing? Well, I mean, honestly, it's like my, my social life sort of diminished. Right. Um, I, I took the opportunity to work overnight shifts wow. uh, where the needs were in the shop. So I was working overnight shifts and I was working daytime shifts. I was staying, you know, for free, working for free in, in wow. many, for many, many hours wow. to learn how to temper chocolate and, and build chocolate showpieces and, you know, do to do things that I might not be able to learn other places. Or if I were to try and learn some of these specialty techniques, I have to go spend, um, you know, like a thousand dollars on a three day or four day class. Wow. Uh, which is totally cool too. I was down for that if that was going to be the situation. But I, I think I really just tried to devour the work. You know, the, the work, this field is something that I think maybe some new people getting into the field kind of miss where, I mean, you can make a, you know, you can make a croissant. I make a lot of croissants, but if you only make like a couple thousand croissant, you don't really grasp what's going on. It's something that you really need to practice for several years to, I think, get the mastery of, uh, of the product. Wow, that's incredible. I never thought you would say, if you only made a few thousand, you didn't really get it. It's just amazing. You know, people want shortcuts. People want to figure out, you know, why did this person succeed? They compare themselves to people's highlight reel instead of seeing the behind the scenes. You know, it's like what you put into this it was inevitable. And there's no question you were going to get there. You put so much of yourself into it and you practiced until you became a master. It's, in, it's incredible. So what happened then? I mean, I think after I was done working for that chef for a little over two years, kind of like with his blessing, I went on to another property in the same company. So that's when I first came out to California and um, just continued baking and pastry. And then, you know, I started thinking about the field itself and you know, how difficult it is, how physical it is. And, you know, can I see myself, you know, what avenue do I want to take? Do I see myself as a, as a restaurant pastry chef? Do I want to have a bakery? Do I want to have a cafe? You know, like, like, what do I want to do? But I felt like, you know, there are just other sides. Maybe there was food photography. There is uh, being a culinary instructor. You can go into consulting. Right, right. So I wanted to kind of use my mind a little bit more because I had spent so many years just being like a physical worker. Right. And I felt like there was still like another level, like another arena to think about food in. And that's when I, well, essentially, so I came out here, I left the, it was like a, a hotel that I was working for. And then I left the hotel, which, you know, you make everything in from wedding cakes to very basic plated desserts and the whole range of stuff. And then I, from there, I wanted to kind of focus on some other baking techniques. I worked at a real popular bakery in the city and uh, focused on that. And then I went and opened up uh, a restaurant as their pastry chef. And then I think it was after that point, you know, again, a lot of physical work. That's when I wanted to go into teaching. Hmm. So after working with a lot of chefs, like younger guys, uh, I guess at the time younger than me, I'm not sure what it was, but we would have these exchanges in, in the kitchens and I tried to explain techniques. Then I just started getting a lot of feedback from guys saying like, have you ever taught before? Uh, you know, I, when I went to school, I wish I had someone who was able to distill the information like like how you're presenting it. So oh, that's nice. Yeah, I just kind of listened to some of these guys and I thought maybe I should check out teaching. 
So that's when I got out of the kitchen, the, the kitchen from the normal sense, I guess, like an everyday right, prep right, kitchen. Right. And um, I just started teaching at a small culinary school in, in San Francisco. And then I went on to a much, a much larger specialized pastry and baking school. Um, and I think that's when I, I feel like I, I was able to really articulate what was going on in a, in a deeper, meaningful way um, yeah. and, and in a way that I can explain to people and create value from the exchange so that they can actually go on to whatever city that they live in or wherever little little town in the world that they're coming from and, you know, take those ideas and actually apply them in, in a real in a real way. Yeah, that's really rewarding. And so ultimately, you know, now you have this great bakery and I, I've read all these great articles about you. And so, so when did that all begin, that journey? Was it after you were teaching that you started this kiosk? How did that all start? After teaching, uh, I went and opened up another pastry shop project. And then while I was at the school teaching, we do a lot of consulting for small businesses and, and large businesses alike. So I just kind of like reevaluated where I was at. I just kind of like looked at everything I had been doing. I'd been helping people start their own businesses for a couple of years and developing recipes. So I, I, I just figured like, you know, while I'm young and I can still take the physical work to try and start my own little shop. And that's when um, I had made a friend, uh, this guy who had a large wholesale bakery mm-hmm. and he just had some extra space. So he kind of laid down some parameters like I can only work overnight. Oh my gosh. I couldn't work later than uh, 6 a.m. Oh and gosh. I couldn't start before 6 p.m. So I had 12 hours, seven days a week, overnight to start to start something. So I, you know, I just kind of went for it. That, that's so amazing. And, I mean, talk about being resourceful. So you, you have a friend, he has his wholesale place, and he says, yeah, sure, but here's the parameters. You have to work overnight. And you say... Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is, this is exactly what people listening need to hear because it's about people saying, well, I don't have the time, I don't have the resources, and you're saying whatever time you've got. If this is something you love, look what you are willing to do. So you start working overnight. You're telling me you weren't sleeping. You were working overnight so that you could get the benefit of using this kitchen. This is amazing. Yeah. So how long were you doing this for and what happened as a result? Uh, I mean, that went on for about three years. Oh my God. Um, and basically, after the second year, um, having the business open. So from the get go, from pretty much day one, I had started like QuickBooks and I was documenting it, everything in, in like, you know, in a professional way so that I can go to a bank and borrow money because no one was going to lend me money, uh, nor did I have like $300,000 sitting in a bank somewhere. Wait, so let me just get this clear so that I spell it out for people listening. So you you start using this kitchen and right away, whatever you're making in the kitchen, you start selling it day one? Yeah, yeah. And where were you selling that? Yeah, I mean, like, and well, just even before that. So, I mean, it's through the generosity of this guy looking out for me because I I was, I I felt like I was a pretty honest person uh, and I worked really hard. So he offered me, you know, very generously to use the space. Right. And then between my wife and friends and family, you know, we raised basically like $40,000. And then from, you know, that I threw down $20,000 to buy a refrigerator and like a, a dough roller, dough rolling machine. Wow. Yeah, because that's really, that's it. Like I, if I was going to start something, I wasn't going to try to create some giant brand and like overdo the business. I just wanted to kind of get some wheels rolling. Okay. And where you know, would you so, sell this product when you would, you know, be done in the morning and you'd have your pastries? Where were you selling them? 
just coffee shops. Oh, you would uh, you go know, and, who... and I sell. That's interesting. So you would go and walk into coffee shops and see if they wanted to sell your stuff and they do it on consignment or how does that work? Yeah, just it was a straight, normal wholesale business. Um, oh, I see. You know, so some of the coffee shop owners who knew me from some previous pastry projects uh, knew that I was going to start like a little wholesale pastry business. So they said as soon as I was up and going to um, hit them up. So I, I made some pastries, brought them by for tastings. People liked them. And I just started off really small, okay. you know, and Amazing. it was just an everyday seven days a week. You know, I basically worked, I mean, without ex- any exaggeration, probably 18, 20 hours a day. Oh, my God. And you know, I definitely neglected my health, which wasn't too smart. But you know, I think when I think when you're faced with like a certain realities, like like I wanted to make this thing work, and I, I didn't want to come up with excuses why why it couldn't work. Yep. I just wanted to go for it. Yep. And I think like a, a good mental state got me through a lot of the just the physical like fatigue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that um, makes a lot of sense. So yeah, so I just like basically just started off small, like one coffee. Sh- shop and two coffee shops and these coffee shops were growing um in popularity and like each of them started to open up another location and this so is in san francisco whole, yeah yeah in san francisco yeah. so the, the wholesale business seemed to grow naturally along with everyone else and their success around me how did you get those wholesale gigs I, you know honestly it was all word of mouth people tried the products and I just, I guess, you know, from enough time in the industry, like I just have a, a reputation. I guess I'm known at some level as uh, the croissant guy or I was like teaching for a number of years. So, uh, you know, I guess people in the business knew me. So people at the coffee shops knew me. They knew what I was about. They knew that I was always working with like good kitchens or good bakeries. So, I, I mean, I, I've never sold anything. I, we've never reached out to try and sell a single product. It's all been word of mouth. And I'm even to the point where I've resisted doing things on Facebook and Instagram. A lot of my bakers have, have put stuff on Instagram, which is cool. Like I, I like that people are excited. But for me, the sales part was something that I first tried to do in this kind of old school approach, which I still feel is like the tried and true best way. Because 50% of my customers come by on a daily basis. Hmm. Um, you know, or I should say 50% of the sales are repeat people rather so, than just people who maybe if we're just in a really popular part of the city where like all the tourists go through. So I believe the word of mouth really got me all the initial sales in the first place. And then I just tried to make sure that my product, you know, were placed in, in cafes that were also of, of a high caliber. So I didn't try to just take any shop who wanted to sell my stuff. I made sure that that cafe really cared about their coffee. They really cared about service. And I just felt like those were the two basic elements, I mean, that I I, I really needed. So how did you do that? How did you get yourself into those cafes that you really wanted? Well, just from doing some other projects, you know, wholesale is a really, really tricky business to do. So there aren't a huge amount of wholesale makers in San Francisco. So when someone actually is new starting up, word travels pretty quick. Mm -hmm. So I was able to just sort of ride the wave of demand. And I, I think, honestly, it was pretty straightforward like that. I mean, I had a good reputation. I made product that people were really into. And I, I was always there. I was always providing, you know. So you didn't have yeah, to reach out e- to cafes. To they were reaching out to you? Correct. Yeah, they were reaching out to me. Got it. So, you know, I find that incredible. And I, I believe this is true. And I say it all the time that when you actually put the hustle into it and you show up because many other people don't show up, just the fact that you're there presents opportunities. And you were just saying how, you know, one of the reasons 
that you were able to get people who wanted to sell your stuff in coffee shops is because there weren't a lot of people doing it wholesale. And, and it just so happened that your product was incredible, which continued to make the word of mouth, you know, go the distance. And then it obviously led to where you're at now. But just the fact that you showed up and you were a person who had that to offer, you know, puts you in a, in, a, in a space where you weren't competing against that many people. And then it turned out you happened to be the best at it. Okay, so now what happens? Uh, so basically, I mean, the situation was temporary um, in the wholesale space. So he would actually renew it every six months because he wasn't the, the, the guy I was renting the kitchen from. He wasn't sure when his expansion was going to take off. So as he grew a little bit, you know, space got smaller and smaller in the shop to finally he was like, hey, man, you know, at the end of this year, you're going to have to figure something else out. So for me, figuring that thing out was basically I had to get my own bakery. Wow. So, that's a big deal. Um, okay. Yeah, it's a it's a big deal. But from the beginning, I was putting together all the sales, and at that point, from after two years of doing it, I was able to go to a bank and say, "Hey, this is like a really solid business. You know, how much can you guys lend me?" So I got, uh, you know, however much they were able to lend me, wow. and plus whatever savings we had from being open for two years, and then we just found a little space and just made it work. It was like a it's like less than a thousand square feet, but. Wow. We built it out from nothing and hmm, incredible. And then is yeah, this so now we have our, our brick and mortar like neighbor bakehouse. That's what it is now. How'd you get the bank loan? Did you just walk into the bank? Well, at first, when I was doing the research on starting a business, I had gone to like a small business seminar and kind of went through. You know, you need a lawyer. You need to get you know like all the steps. So there was a just the bank that was kind of hosting the small business seminar. Oh, interesting. So I went to them and I said, you know, or I asked, you know, what's needed in order for me to borrow money from you guys? Like I have zero assets. Yeah. Like I don't really have any money of my own. So they said, uh, you can take out a credit card where maybe, you know, for $15,000 at best, you know, or you just got to bust your tail for the next couple of years. And in two years, we'll talk to you because then therefore you would have had a body of work in the form of like, you know, your QuickBooks and your whole P&L. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so I wasn't able to get any money from them until I was open for two years. And that's how every bank was. So that's when I went from like a business plan, which included building out a bakery from day one to, hey, I, I don't have anything. I'm going to go do this overnight thing for two years and hope to God it works out. Smart. So it was all just kind of a gamble. And was there a certain number that they said they needed to see at the end of those two years? Or they just said, you know, give it your best shot for two years and come to us and then at least show us a body of work? Or was there like a, you have to at least have made $60,000? Was there something like that? Uh, no, they didn't like, they didn't establish a number, but it's almost kind of, it's kind of like realistically, you know, over the course of 365 days, you, you need to show growth and you need to show profitability. So mm -hmm. I, I provided both of those things. Amazing. And yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's kind of relative, but if you're, if you're only doing something passively, for instance, um, if I was only going to be open two days a week and I was only going to have like $1,000 a week in sales, you know, at the end of the year, that isn't a very large business. So if you're going to be asking for so much more money right. than what you're actually even participating in, I don't think the banks would have been so interested in like lending me money. Like I needed, I knew that I needed to create something of a certain breadth, you know, some, yeah. something that's big enough you know, for people to look at with enough zeros connected to it that they could be like, oh, okay. Yeah. So basically for me, after the third month, we had paid back any money that we borrowed from friends and family. Wow. And we were profitable, you know, every month for basically, you know, 
up, up until the point of building out the next projects, uh, the brick and mortar. Wow. So clearly, you're not really making money when you're investing back into your business. Right, right, right. And, uh, so all these people were starting to sell your stuff in different coffee shops. And then didn't you have, before the brick and mortar shop, you had your own kiosk in Dogpatch, correct? Well, it wasn't a kiosk. I was just doing pop-ups. Like pop-ups. What does that mean? Uh, it's just when chefs who don't have like their own kitchen outfit, they're able to like uh, rent from another kitchen space or like a little cafe that might be closed on a day or an evening. And then if I made ramen or something, I can make my ramen stock and I can bring my whole setup and then people know they can go to the cafe wherever and like get ramen for that one special night. So oh, I was uh, doing a pop-up out of two different places right on the on the, the block where I'm located. One was Sutton Cellars. And then the other was Mr. and Miscellaneous Ice Cream. So I ended up doing Sutton Cellars for maybe about six months. And then uh, because of like certain health regulations, like the floor wasn't even enough or something, I wasn't able to do it. And then I moved over to the ice cream shop. And I did that once a week for, I think, about a year and a half. Wow. It was just really important. You know, when doing wholesale, there's no face connected to the product. So... I kind of missed it. I, I, I missed people kind of biting into something and being like, holy cow, that is like, you know, yeah. you see the expression yeah. in their eyes light up. Yeah. So I think from just being overnight for two years and being disconnected, that was the connection I, I needed to kind of re-stimulate myself for the next stage. And knowing that people really dug what they were eating, that was, you know, super positive. So when did you open Neighbor Bakehouse? Yeah, Neighbor Bakehouse. When yeah, did you I opened open that it? up two years ago. Wow. So this so is your did, own shop? We did own shop. for three years. Wow. And then at the end of the third year, we were able to open up the, the brick and mortar. And what's what's your day-to-day like now? Yeah, the day-to-day is like, I, I work definitely a little bit less than I was doing in the beginning, thank God, because <laughs> that's not sustainable. You have to have like an exit strategy. Right. And, you know, my wife, she joined the business, you know, earlier on before we did the brick and mortar because I was just, I was just buried. I mean, yeah. I, there, is, there is, wasn't any more work that I could handle but we were getting so much busier. So she actually changed her career. Like she, you know, studied in school and she had, you know, so many other things she was doing. She was doing skincare professionally for like five years. So she joined me for the whole brick and mortar thing. So now like my life has become a little bit more balanced and uh, the day to day is still just like working and training people, trying to develop new recipes. Um, I also continue to teach, you know, for different schools and it's, you know, it's like a cool functioning bakery. I mean, we have like great clients, people who, you know, come by multiple times a week and I'm able to like hang out in the shop and I have a great crew, uh, great staff. I mean, everyone's like super wonderful. Wow. So, How I many mean, people like, are on your staff? Uh, they're like 19 of us. Oh my God, Greg. Yeah. So we you got like 19 a nice people crew. working for you now because you're willing yeah. to, you know, your own words. You wanted to do something that was honest, that made people feel good and you were willing to continue to recommit yourself to why you wanted this why you wanted this life even if it meant working overnight and now here you are and you are that neighbor it's just such a perfect name for this whole story your neighbor bakery you're that person yeah. who really cares about genuinely seeing someone just be happy in a simple transaction of just enjoying that breakfast it's incredible you're living that dream yeah i try not to overthink it i think Maybe with life, you know, things get complicated. But I, I think for myself, you know, at, at a personal level, when I when I look forward, and I, as I still look forward, like, how do I want to continue to shape myself and my career? I just try to kind of 
keep it to the, these basic rules, you know, being honest, you know, be fair, be a good person, be there to support, you know, people around you. And yeah, I mean, I, I get a, I guess I feel really good about that. Yeah, I would if I was you. I mean, I think you built, like you said early on, one of your first teachers talked about the foundation and the foundation of the basics of the craft. But I think you also have a really strong foundation of what it is to be human. And um, that coupled with your your mastery of your work, it's a really good combination. Thanks. Yeah, it's true. What do you think so, that main ingredient, no pun intended, what's the main ingredient? It? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, the main ingredient, is, I would say for people who are just starting out, you know, take the time to work for other people. Yeah, I think experience, I, maybe I'd say for food, and maybe it can translate to other things, I'd say one of the main ingredients is experience. Yeah. Get really good experience before you just jump right into something. Because the fact is, you work for other people and you learn how to do things on like someone else's dime. Right. Right. You know, but it, unless you have a huge pot of money that can basically finance all your learning curves and mistakes, which I tell you, like you might have a big pile of money, but it goes very fast yeah. in, in a city for one and mm-hmm. in the food business for two. So I, I would say like if I look back, the greatest resource I have or had was trying to gain really great experience before jumping into the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, that was and, obvious you know, from your story. You know, you'd be willing to spend $1,000 on a class if that was what was in order at the moment. But meanwhile, you were just trying to learn as much as you could, even if it meant working for free by putting yourself in positions to just gain experience, whatever that is. I mean, that was so, um, that's powerful. You know, that was powerful that you're yeah. willing to take that leap and trust that that would eventually help you be better and that that's, that's what you needed to do. You put in that time. Yeah, time time was a big deal, you know. And some people just measure it a little bit too strict as far as like how much are they making. But when people come into my shop, if they when they stage with me, it's like a, a person that comes in and just sort of volunteers to broaden their education in the field. They walk away with like a lot of experience, and that's the value. Yeah. So if people want to make fifteen bucks an hour to come, you know, hang out for three months. I mean, honestly, I don't really take people like that. Because everyone's sort of at a disadvantage. You know, I think, yeah, for people who can see the value in what they want to do in the future, spend time, support, make a good network and a good connection. And you'll find that when you're off doing your own thing, you're going to have people around looking out for you. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so I loved when you were talking about how having that good mental state is what really kept recommitting you to being able to take on that much work. How did you put yourself in that mental state and what are you doing now to keep that alive um well i think the just the mental state was just like i want to succeed and you know if being tired was the only problem then it's like you know i gotta buck up i I just tried to just not give myself too many reasons to feel feel the pain i guess you know denial was totally cool you know (laughs) (laughs) it's like no it's this isn't as bad as it is. <laughs> right. You know, I, I don't think that's sustainable. That's why I just tried to have like an exit strategy, you know, at, at the end of like six months or at the end of that the third year. It's like I needed to be in my own bakery. So I think the just it's just a positive mental state where it's like I'm doing what I what I want to do. I make food that I I stand by and, yes. and I enjoy. Yes. You know, to like complain about the work that you want to do just seemed a little bit ridiculous to me. So, oh my God, I, I love that really... sentence. To complain about the work you want to do. I love that sentence. 
That is the sentence I've been looking for for many, many months talking to people because that's it. I mean, this is the thing you want to do. Why are you complaining about the work you want to do? All right. So, Greg, that was such a cool story. I feel like anyone who's listening to you right now just felt like you are their friend that they they kind of always cool. knew. I mean, <laughs> you you are so sincere. You're so genuine. You really care. Um there's nothing about you that's pomp and circumstance, and I have no doubt that you will continue to touch people and do that thing you always wanted to do, which you're doing, which is just make people feel good and give them something that is valuable. Where do you want people to find you? Where's the best place for people to go to figure out you know, what you're up to and taste what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, Neighbor Bakehouse, 3rd Street, in the dog patch, stop by. Like, I'm often there. Not as much as I, as I used to be, of course, but yeah, I mean, it's like we we just do our thing here. It's uh, it's pretty straightforward. And do you have an online component you want people to check out? Yeah, I mean, if you go to neighborsf.com, I mean, it's just like a real simple website. You can see some pics of the food, um, hours of operation, like standard information. Well, if you're listening, San Francisco already has a lot of cool stuff going on. But if you if you want to taste the best croissant you've had. Um, in your life, you should go to Dog Patch in San Francisco and go to Neighbor Bakehouse. Greg, thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you so much. This was pretty cool. Yeah. Greg, thank you so much for sharing that story. It's, uh, I love it. It's like a real story, but parts of it are superhuman with what you put into it. Here's some of the takeaways that I got from you. Number one, the work speaks for itself. Number two, don't complain about doing the work you want to do. Number three, positivity can overcome pain. Number four, build experience. Number five, be willing to work for free to learn. Number six, if you can show a couple years of growth, someone else may want to invest in what you're doing. Number seven, you have to make more than a few thousand croissants to master it. Number eight, if you don't have your own space, you could rent it or borrow it. Don't let that stop you. And number nine, the quality of the work will open all the doors. So guys, go and check him out neighbor bakehouse and let him know that you heard about him on the podcast show him some love let him know that this community is supporting him and i hope that uh, this helped you i feel like he had really valuable advice to share and and i think those of you listening you could apply some of that so so let him know that you enjoyed it and tell them you heard about the bakery on the podcast all right guys this is so much fun thank you for listening it allows us to do what we love to do here and bring you this show if you enjoy this please come to our facebook page if you have creative friends who are bakers dancers photographers screenwriters if you have friends you think would be inspired by this tell them to listen and, and tell them to come to the facebook page because on this page we're supporting each other we're putting up things that we're doing i'm offering a workshop to those of you who've been so kind and left us a review on itunes if you come to the facebook page you're now eligible to click on that link and join me for a real live online workshop. Let's talk about what it is that you want to do. Let's take this off the page and turn this into a real relationship. Come to the Facebook page, join the online workshop so that this isn't just inspiration, but it turns into action. I'm here to help support you and help you move forward in doing what it is you want to do. I want to give a shout out to the amazing team who makes this show possible. Special thanks to our executive producer, Tim Street and producer Emma Kikuchi. The podcast is a production of Authentic. For more info on advertising in this show, visit AuthenticShows.com.